1: Welcome to the Crisis Extremes and Apocalypse podcast series channel, a collaboration between the New Books Network and the Crisis Extremes and Apocalypse Research Network at the University of Oxford. The Crisis Extremes and Apocalypse Research Network was created in September 2016 and aims to shed as many perspectives as possible on these themes, from music and philosophy to extremism passing by Brexit, debates in early modern epistemology, the use of rhetoric and even artificial intelligence. It also seeks to approach them metacritically and understand their various deployments. My name is Audrey borowski and joining me today is Walter Scheidel. Walter Scheidel is an Austrian historian who is the Dickerson Professor in the Humanities, Professor of Classics and History, and Catherine R. Kennedy and Daniel Grossman Fellow in Human Biology at Stanford University. Walter Scheidel has just written a, a new book uh, called The Great Leveller, that was recently published by Princeton University Press. Walter Scheidel, uh, thank you so much for, for being with us, for joining us today.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Now, how, did, how, does, one come, how does one arrive to such a book? Your, your training, your, your background is, if I understand correctly, in more in the Greco-Roman world. How does one culminate uh, from, from antiquity to death, disease, ca- and catastrophe?
0: Uh, that's true. Um, I, I, I did approach this issue from the vantage point of an ancient or a premodern historian, which I think gave me some advantages over the economists who are usually looking at the issue of economic inequality, because they ordinarily focus on the present or maybe the 20th century, whereas I was interested in a very long sweep of history, where we could identify uh, long-term patterns, long-term dynamics that held true over hundreds or even thousands of years, and if you come from that angle, it's certainly beneficial to have some first-hand experience with earlier sources, with evidence that economists might regard as being inadequate because it doesn't really measure up the very high standards that are common in the social science.
1: I mean, your book is is quite uh, is quite uh, controversial, and its its thesis, its main thesis, is uh, is. Uh, provocative to say the least I mean, according to you basically the best ways to reduce inequality and will will define that as economic equality is pretty much through through disease and destruction and not any type of violence you know cataclysmic uh, catastrophic kinds of violence I mean you identify four forms four horsemen uh, as you name them in your book.
0: That's right, yes. The, the, the basic result is really that whenever we observe a really significant reduction in income and wealth inequality in history, regardless of where we lock, what century, what millennium, they are always invariably linked to some massive violent dislocation. And those violent dislocations, as you said, come in four flavors, hence the analogy of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Uh, mass yes, mobilization, you talk opera, about plagues, transformative revolutions, state collapse, and very civil.
1: Yes, you you talk about plagues, revolutions, massive wars, and uh, and and diseases. I mean, according to you, according to your understanding of history, there have been two peaks of 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 great inequality uh, in in human history so far. You identify them as the Black uh, Death in the medieval period, and then uh, the period right before. Uh, the First
0: World War. Um. Uh, That's right. In fact, in European history, there are even three peaks, right? One would coincide with the the Roman Empire, which was a very unequal, very stratified and hierarchical society. It really generated inequality on an unprecedented scale. And when it fell apart, inequality went down. And then it was restored again, peaking right before the Black Death came in, Uh, in bubonic plague and the... Fourteenth century, which then reduced it greatly, and then you had another four hundred years or so of rising inequality all the way up to about 1914, and then it was World War One, World War Two, that changed conditions uh, very dramatically, but not, it seems, permanent
1: How, I mean, could you say, according to your, in your, in your opinion, how have things have evolved? And yes, how have things have evolved? And what would you say? How does the current situation stand?
0: Uh, Well, in the long term, the the driving forces behind inequality have changed uh, over time. If you go far enough back in time, uh, inequality was sustained to a large extent by coercion, by predation, by essentially hitting other people over the head and taking away their stuff. That's no longer so common in many parts of the world. In some parts of the world, it's still the case. Uh, In more recent centuries, market forces, capitalism, uh, globalization, uh, those mechanisms have taken over as creators of economic inequality. but The overall outcome uh, seems to have been the same, that whenever a system is durable, uh, stable, peaceful for an extended period of time, inequality either tends to go up or tends to be preserved at very high levels, and it takes those violent shocks uh, to really shake things up, to upend the established order and, in the process, reduce inequality. So. If you look at the present, we have now in the West at least had peace since 1945 on a a really grand scale. And as a result of this in recent decades, uh, inequality in in a great many countries has begun to rise again to varying degrees depending on which country you're looking at, but it's a pretty universal trend. And it seems seems to have something to do with the general um, attenuation or abatement uh, of the forces that were unleashed in the first half of the 20th century.
1: I mean, you seem throughout your book to offer a a, a somewhat, uh, if I I may say so, a bleak account of history, historical progress, quote-unquote, and even human nature. I mean, um, you even say democracy on its own does not consistently lower inequality. And the impression that one gets is that there is this kind of Natural, if not inevitable, force, inevitable trend for societies to generate high levels of inequality, at which point then some some catastrophe occurs. But there does there, there is a very strong whiff of inevitability. Uh, are you are you positing some kind of determinism here, inescapable well, determinism? I'm always,
0: of course, yes. Well, as any good historian, I'm always wary of positing any laws of history or engaging in some kind of deterministic argument. It's just in this particular case, my initial intuition that this mechanism was really important was fully borne out by the evidence. So I did expect to find more uh, counterexamples that would uh, work against my thesis, but it hasn't really been uh, the case. And that certainly made me more pessimistic in the course of producing my book. Now, of course, um, the story is a mixed one. Uh, Poverty has been greatly reduced, uh, not just in Western countries, but all around the world, especially in recent decades. So that's a major success story. Inequality, economic inequality between countries has been going down for some time now because many developing countries, China, India, with very large populations, have been catching up rapidly. So all of these things should count as success stories in the fight uh, against inequality. And of course, there are many other types of inequality in terms of gender, race, and so on, and on all these fronts, a great deal of progress has been made also. So economic inequality within societies almost stands out as a rather unique feature that tends to be more resilient than other types of inequality uh, that we can observe. And mm. that's certainly something uh, uh, worthy of, of further study and analysis and much, more, much deeper consideration. It has been given so far.
1: Yes, I mean, indeed, I, I was thinking of Stephen Pinker's uh, recent books on uh, on uh, this idea that actually, on the contrary, in spite of appearances, we are actually, we have done, uh, we have been experiencing incredible, inc- incredible progresses uh, recently, and actually, the world is is uh, is getting better. And the second point too that one might interject is whether inequality, if everything really does boil down to fundamentally. Um,
0: economic equality in economic terms. Uh, That's certainly true. We are much richer than we used to be. We are much more peaceful uh, than we used to be. Societies are much more stable in most parts of the world than they used to be. So in that sense, um, as I said, there are a great many success stories to be told. In that case, we might wonder whether economic equality in and of itself is Uh, sort of the biggest problem of our time, which I don't really think it is. There are more pressing issues such as poverty or climate change, uh, that sort of thing. Um, So the question is really what what significance should we assign uh, the distribution of income and wealth in a given society if in the end everybody is better off than they used to be a generation or two ago. And that's partly a political question. It's partly a moral uh, or ethical question and uh very reasonable people can take different positions on this question legitimately
1: my my main concern with with your book and your argument is that i i, I feel sometimes it's it's bordering slightly it's not erring very far away from 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 a sophism i mean inevitably for example if i kill a lot of people inevitably then overall it's it is less likely that there will be uh, inequality will be reduced
0: what, what would you have to say to that I mean, the mechanisms vary in their effect. So some of these leveling forces that I describe simply make the rich less rich. Everybody may be worse off than before, but the rich simply have more to lose. Uh, That's the case with state collapse, for instance. That's a very undesirable mechanism of leveling. There are others where the rich end up being less rich, but the poor are less poor, uh, which may sound a little more attractive. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's what happened after the Black Death, and it's certainly what happened in the 20th century when uh, after the World Wars, the rich lost a lot of income, uh, their assets um, um, lost a great deal of value, whereas uh, ordinary working people were better off uh, than before because there was full employment, uh, partly through conscription or the war effort. There was an enormous increase in trade union membership, extension of the franchise, any a number of things that benefited uh, a broad segment of the population. So yes, there was an enormous amount of violence, but the outcome was, at least if you look, Uh, at at poverty alleviation and and reduction of inequality was ultimately beneficial. It would just be nice if we could identify similarly powerful mechanisms, empirically, historically, that have similarly uh, beneficial outcomes. And here the historical record is really not a a great Mm. source of, of hope or inspiration because it simply doesn't seem to have happened yet. Which doesn't mean that at some point in the 21st century this might not happen. It just doesn't strike me as terribly likely, based on what we have experienced so far, and also based on many of the trends that are already operational in the world today, and that we can project outwards over the next uh, few decades or so. And very many of these trends actually point in the direction of increasing, rather than falling, mm. economically.
1: We're going to get to that. I mean, mm. from and fr- from from what you're saying, you, you, what really comes out of of the book is this idea that there really is no peaceful leveling. Does not is not really that efficient, and the only real efficient way to buck this trend, this inevitable trend of inequality, seems to be through 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 radical
0: violence. Uh, it's it's in part a matter of scale. It's certainly possible to affect economic inequality at the margins by peaceful means. A very good example is what happened in Latin America uh, between the start, the beginning of the century and just a few years ago, uh, where inequality did go down quite a bit in most uh, Latin American countries uh, as a result of a combination of very unusual circumstances, uh, some of them political, uh, a shift in a a more sort of progressive uh, direction in policymaking, strong economic growth, the benefits of the commodity. Uh, boom in China, recovery from previous crises, and a number of things coming together in compressing the distribution of income at least a little bit. But even that process seems to have stalled by now, and they have run into more serious political uh, pushback, economic uh, difficulties, and so on. So it's very hard to say whether this is sustainable. So yes, there are certainly plenty of examples out there of inequality mitigation. In fact, it happens successfully every single day in every developed country in the world. If you look at Britain, Europe, even the U.S., uh, uh, inequality, income inequality after taxes and transfers is much lower than it is before taxes and transfers. So the redistributive function of the state already helps to take uh, a a lot of the pressure off. But that's an ongoing process that needs to be managed very carefully and that in recent years seems to have become more and more expensive Mm -hmm. uh, for taxpayers.
1: Yes, and this is, I mean, and this is where we are. We are proceeding um, today. We seem to have, to be experiencing the greatest disparity and discrepancy in wealth that the world world has known. I mean, for example, half the world's uh, wealthiest. Um, sorry, half the world's wealth belongs to the top one percent of the population. We also have the prospect of labor automation. Why do you think this occurs for the
0: future? Uh, that's certainly true, and as I said, there are certain trends that point in, in a rather undesirable uh, direction. One of them is automation, uh, which is inherently open-ended. Uh, more and more jobs will be uh, done by software or robots. And of course, the argument is, well, it will be replaced by better jobs. It may well be true in the long run, but there are always uh, problems in transition. There are always groups of people who will be left behind uh, because they can't adapt uh, fast enough uh, to those changes because the provision of education, especially to adults, can't uh, necessarily keep up uh, with those very rapid uh, transformations. So that has a great deal of potential for disequalization, for greater inequality. Another one, of course, is globalization. It is very beneficial to a great many people, both in developing and developed countries, but there are certain segments of the population in rich Western countries who have suffered as a result of the industrialization, outsourcing uh, of various kinds and so on. And they will arguably continue to be left behind, and that in turn has the potential of stirring up uh, political uh, movements, populism, as we have seen in in the U.S. and in other places uh, in, in, in recent years. Um, then, of course, uh, another factor that's particularly important in Europe is the, is the secular aging of the population. We already know what the age structure in some European countries is going to be, to be years from now. Uh, and there will be fewer and fewer people of working age uh, supporting more and more people who are very, very old and in need of care, expensive health care and so on. And that's going to put a great deal of extra pressure on the welfare state. Uh, hard decisions will have to be made about how many resources to commit to redistribution, uh, how much money to commit to caring uh, for the, the elderly, uh, for health care, and so on. And then, of course, the flip side of this is immigration, the idea being as populations age, there will simply be more immigration from other countries. Well, the source countries are in places like um, Africa, the Middle East, uh, where fertility rates are still pretty high. Lots of people would like to move to welfare societies, and that in turn, once you have this massive influence, has really just begun in many countries that in turn is going to put extra pressure on existing political structures, on attitudes, and again on the welfare state because then the question is uh, how well does integration work, how willing are um, our taxpayers to uh, redistrib- redistribute resources uh, to less fortunate people, less wealthy people who may come. Uh, from somewhere else and maybe very different uh, from um, the way they are. Um, That hasn't really quite started yet, but if you look at um, um, surveys, um, how they affect attitudes, that may well uh, become a serious issue in the foreseeable future. So there are a great many ways in which inequality might actually go up rather than down.
1: And is there a particular threshold uh, at which um inequality is, is no longer redeemable through peaceful measure, through peaceful
0: means? That's a really important question and the answer so far is we just really don't know mm. because it hasn't happened yet. Uh, we haven't really had any real experience with um, modern western style rich democratic societies reaching a very high level of inequality. We just don't know whether this is going to lead to some kind of political or social destabilization or whether it is sustainable in the long run. It was certainly very often sustainable in the past when societies were less democratic, less inclusive. So it may well be uh, that this is no longer feasible. But the jury is really out on this. We just simply don't know. You can observe what effects inequality has on the stability of societies in developing countries, where people have looked at civil wars and breakdowns over the last 50 or 60 years. And then you can say that economic inequality does increase the likelihood of some kind of violent breakdown, uh, some internal conflict, but for rich uh, democratic societies, we just simply don't know. So it's very difficult to make any kind of educated guesses or conjectures in that uh, respect.
1: And conversely, I mean, conversely to the fact, um, to to that fact. Um, Today, what are the odds of a a massive disaster occurring because of globalization precisely because of the wealth and precisely because of the state of inequality and, and great inequality, global inequality towards, towards which we have been gradually uh, culminating? what are the odds of there actually being a total wipeout, a total a total catastrophe that would actually be able to affect the kind of leveling that has occurred in the past?
0: Yeah, it seems that if you look at the the four traditionally effective mechanisms, they are unlikely uh, to come back anytime mm-hmm. soon. If there's going to be another world war, it's not going to be like World War II with tens of millions of people drafted, uh, that sort of thing. It's going to be a high-tech war probably across...
1: Drone warfare. The
0: Uh, I'm not aware of any Bolsheviks or latter-day Bolsheviks lurking in the wings, waiting to take over uh, large societies. That seems to have been discredited for the time being. States are much more stable than they used to be, at least outside Central Africa and the Middle East. There could be a plague tomorrow, quite possibly, but we are already far better equipped, thanks to advances in genetics, to deal with this, and 10 years from now we'll be even better equipped to deal with this. People often ask me, what about climate change? Couldn't climate change become the fifth leveler? Uh, in a way, if the worst prognosis we keep hearing turn out to be true 10 or 20 or 50 years from now. And there's certainly a possibility of that. But then climate change will actually reactivate, arguably, uh, some of these dormant uh, leveling forces that might lead to war, revolution, state collapse, epidemics. So uh, those things could come back through the back door mediated by some serious degree of environmental degradation. But that's really the only mechanism I can really see right now that might plausible uh, uh, produce this outcome in the longer term.
1: I was thinking more possibly of viral, uh, of a viral uh, epidemic, something like that. Which is generally ranked higher actually than the, the risks associated, traditionally associated with artificial intelligence.
0: No, that's, that's certainly true. Um, and, and again, we don't really know what effect a very massive loss of life caused by some, some new kind of disease would have on an industrial uh, society because it has never really happened before. It happened with the Spanish flu right after World War I and it was tied up with the effects of that war. So we just really don't know. Uh, that's, again, there are no precedents in history that would give us a, a sense of how that may, may play out.
1: And my final question really is going back maybe a bit to political theory. Whilst I was I was I was reading all the, the all your book and all the documents pertaining to your book, I was thinking back to Rousseau and you know the social con the the social contract and the second the second discourse in particular and you know all the bad things that happened once we all came came together in society and whether we should not finally all be better off if we uh, if we stayed in our in our primal uh, state of nature?
0: Uh, Yeah, I guess it's too late for that now, right? I mean, that train left the station a very long time ago. And we are now stuck in this um, um, unstable dynamic world, which continues to generate enormous uh, progress on many fronts. But it also generates its own threats and its own uh, pressures, rising inequality being uh, one of them. And so I think our job is not to dream about how nice it would be to still be foragers or hunter gatherers roaming uh, the savannas, which tens of thousands of years ago. I think the challenge is to think harder about how to manage uh, those pressures. And I think understanding them, understanding the underlying dynamics, is a very important element uh, in successful management.
1: Yes, and ultimately, as you've pointed out, there is only so much that we can predict. Um. History is not an
0: accurate science. That's generally true. Uh, The future turns out to be rather difficult to predict um, in general. Uh, But um, certainly, I mean, in a sense, there is cause for hope because there is no... One thing I haven't found uh, in my long-term studies is that rising inequality would somehow inevitably lead to violence. Uh, That There's no systematic relationship there. So there is hope that even if we happen to get stuck with high levels of economic inequality, that it was not necessarily destabilize um, our societies to a a dangerous degree, which is not a call for defeatism. It doesn't mean we shouldn't uh, think hard about what to do about it, but um, it's not a doomsday scenario. I don't think that inequality in and of itself is going to bring us down. That seems very unlikely.
1: Okay. Well, thank you very much, um, uh, Professor Scheidel, for having joined us for this interview. And I do uh, enjoin our listeners to read uh, Walter Scheidel's latest book, The Great Leveler, which is both fascinating and and polemical, but more relevant and